Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really love doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today on the podcast, we get to talk about a wildly popular course at IBC called Stories of the Jewish Church. The course was created by Professor Pinhas Shear, and everyone who took the course on Acts chapters 1 through 5 demanded that he continue to develop the course, so he created part 2 and is in the process of creating part 3. Last week, we talked about the obviously Jewish saturated context of Acts chapters 1 through 5. We concluded noting the insider language Peter used when he quotes from the prophet Joel. But Peter also uses the Psalms. I wanted to start the conversation this week finding out from Pinhas how Psalm 16 helps to support Peter's claims from the book of Joel. So there's the whole idea of, of um, in Psalm 16, just, just to remind everybody, it says where uh, it says that the God is not going to abandon my soul as Sheol. He's not going to allow his Holy One to undergo decay. What is that about? And most people look at that Psalm and say, oh, it's about resurrection. And that's perfectly fine. Obviously. Obviously. That's what it is about resurrection. So that's okay. But then Peter says, you know, what, what about David? Where is he? Did he rise from the dead? And the obvious answer is no. So there's probably, a, you know, if, if you go today in Jerusalem, there's a place, there's the tomb of David. So you, some some tourists go and visit it. And so I actually doubt that that's an actual historical tomb of David. Yeah. Uh, but that is what we've got. That's a whole other debate. Yeah, that's a whole other debate. <laughs> it's, it's what we've got. So it, it's a traditional place that, that people still come to. And so even today, Jews come to the tomb of David and they pray. And they remember him. And especially on the anniversary of his death, you know, people come. And so surprisingly to many people that the anniversary of his death is Shavuot. That's the tradition. So on Pentecost is when he died. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I heard you say that in your class. I That just is a part of tradition that has tradition. missed my attention. And it's been oral tradition forever until somebody wrote it down. And so now it's kind of like an accepted fact. But at some point... People have believed that that was the date. How did they know? Maybe they kept that memory all this time. I don't know. It's not like anybody recorded it. But at some point, that part of tradition does become recorded. And now it's a well-known fact. So imagine people coming to David's tomb on the Feast of Pentecost. Because that's what you would do. You would visit the tomb of a righteous. It's a good thing to do to keep their memory alive. I mean, he's the king of Israel. This is, this is important. So people would come uh, just to show honor, you know, to remember him. And then they're in Jerusalem for this feast. And then Peter starts talking about the resurrection. And he says, look, David is still there. You just went there. You just saw his tomb. But Jesus is not. And then he 
basically explains that Psalm 16 does not talk about David's resurrection. He points to the fact that it probably talks about his descendants' resurrection. And which descendant could it possibly talk about? Well, the one that rose from the dead, the one that we ourselves saw rise from the dead, the one that we're here witnesses telling you we have seen him rise from the dead. And so he ties his personal experience and the experience of his comrades to the words of the psalm. And he says, we have seen this happen. And that's a real great powerful point for an apocalyptic Jew to say that this is happening now. We have seen this happen. And we're witnesses. We can tell you we were there. That's really awesome in the book of Acts that unfortunately we don't have that ongoing right now. But right there in that chapter, we actually have people who witnessed all these events. They could stand up and say, yes, I saw him rise from the dead. Yes, I saw him walk into the room after he was dead for days. I I love it. It's, you know, you're speaking my language. It is the whole Peter using theologically rich ideas, but he's also borrowing from what is on the landscape, what people physically are doing in that moment to say, look at what you're doing. Look at what's right here. I mean, if Let's I think about it, consider some things, and it's like, oh, I love that. I'm th- if I'm thinking about, you know, where, wherever that sermon happens, right? So I I can visualize him standing out there on a hill, and if David was buried at that time, it would have been in the Valley of the Kings. Okay, so it'd be in the Kidron Valley, right? So he would have literally been able to point from the top where he's standing to the lower part of the valley. He could probably point to the tomb and just say, "Look, right there." And this is something we don't get because we're we're not there. But imagine being there at that moment and him actually being pointing with stretching out his hand and how powerful that message is because people are connected with the message and that moment and what's been happening for them. And it's a much more vivid situation. So I know you get excited because you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. I said Kidron Valley and top of the hill. So that place, the city of David area, like you, you can see it right there. So if he's standing somewhere on the top of the roof, making his pitch to the crowd. And all of a sudden he stretches out his hand. Ah, I love it. Yeah. So it's just a dynamic in terms of communication and it would have communicated to such a vibrant level to that audience in a way that doesn't communicate to us now, just because we ignore place. We think it's just a stage and irrelevant, um, and before I jump on my soapbox. <laughs> uh, i become very text focused and there's nothing wrong with the text, but sometimes we need to go a little bit beyond the text. Yeah. <laughs> so there's another really interesting aspect that you pull out in your course. And then I went and looked at a couple different translations and then looked at the Greek uh, with a lot of help because I've kind of basically forgotten Greek. I apologize. I know Shame you, on you. I know, I know. But in Acts chapter three, Peter and John are, once again, they're in the temple and in the courts at the temple, and they see a man who's lame. And what is interesting to me is the way that Peter calls the man's attention to himself. Mm-hmm. But he actually he's... tells him, look at me first. Like, yeah, look at me. Attention. Yeah. Which is really interesting. But And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Now, different, a lot of different translations will just say, of Nazareth. Do you think that's a significant 
change the Nazarene or of Nazareth? Either one works. I mean, there's a lot of confusion uh, among languages that happens. And, and I talk about it in my course, actually. And I've come across uh, many people confused about the word Nazarite and Nazarene. In fact, most people do not know the difference between Nazarite and Nazarene. To them, it's the same thing. In fact, I had somebody come and tell me that Jesus was a Nazarite. I said, well, that's kind of a problem because I remember him drinking wine. Uh, so uh, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, the, what, the difference is that in, in Greek, all of these letters look the same. So you have letter Zeta, you know, where, where Nazareth is spelled with Zeta. And uh, we have Nazareth, which is a town, a place, um, and it comes from the Hebrew uh, ver, uh, word Netzer. Netzer means a branch or shoot. So it's the place of a branch, which is actually beautiful because messianically it's connected to, you know, Isaiah's branch, shoot, will rise up, you know, that, that's beautiful. And, and perhaps that's why the whole idea of Jesus being called Hanotri, the Nazarene, becomes important because it is an allusion to something. It's an allusion to a prophecy that many people know about, about a branch or a shoot rising up out of nothing, out of a tree that's been cut down, right? And so, but then the word Nazir in, in Hebrew is spelled with a different letter. So in Greek, it's the same. It's still a Zeta, you know, but in Hebrew, you have Zion versus Tzadi. So that Tzaret is with Tzadi and Nazir, which is a word for Nazarite, is with Zion. So you basically, once, once things get translated from Hebrew into Greek, they all start sounding the same. And then you go to English, and now you have even more confusion. And so, and then you take people away from the cultural milieu in a context where they don't really know what a Nazarite is, because they haven't observed that, uh, not not a part of the experience. Then it's very easy to kind of get confused with these words. So, and so when he says to this man that I'm doing this in the name of Jesus, who is Hanotri, the Nazarene, he is very clearly talking to him about a very specific kind of Jesus. And it says in the book of Acts that the whole Jerusalem was aware of this person and of the events that transpired in that very near time around Passover. They, Jerusalem was aware of it. Everybody was talking about. And, the, and, and Jesus, you know, Yeshua is a common word at that time. It's a common name. Uh, it would be like named Robert in, in America. Very common. So when you say Yeshua Hanotri, that makes it very clear. Okay, it's like this. This is a small town. You know, it's like saying, uh, you know, Robert from Paducah, Kentucky. You know, and all of a sudden that <laughs> narrify it narrow, narrows it down. So you know that okay, how many there are from that town? Or something like that. And so Nazareth is not a huge place. And so he, he clarifies it to him which which Jesus does he mean, essentially. And so, and then there's a theological aspect to it, of course, because of the promise, because of the prophecy. But then there's a very clear clarification which one that I am here speaking in the name of. And that, of course, he heals him. So, again, I think at that moment, Jerusalem was filled with words of this man who has been here, who has been captured, who has been crucified, and there's all these people walking around, his followers, talking about him all the time, 
So would this beggar be aware of that? I would say probably yes. And that's why it was warranted for him to stress things that way. There is in Acts chapter 4 another reference to the Psalms that Peter makes. This time he is talking to the Sanhedrin or directly to the high priest or at least to those in charge. And uh, he's making reference to the stone. And in this translation, anyway, I'm reading from the NIV, he quotes it as the stone you builders rejected, which that you builders isn't in the Hebrew Psalms that I know of. I don't know if it's in the no, Septuagint. The stone, so he's, he's kind of doing a little bit of interesting interpretation here. So the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Can you help us again? Again, it's like one little snippet out of the Psalms that he pulls from, but there's just such a bigger, heavier meaning. Yeah, that Psalm is a Messianic Psalm. I mean, it's a well-known Messianic passage from, from the psalm. And it's a psalm that's actually would have been sung at the holidays. It's a part of a holiday liturgy that everyone sings during three feasts. Um, you have the Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot, the pilgrim feasts, is when these psalms would have been sung as people would go up the mountain to worship and as it come down and all of the journeys, that, that's a liturgical piece. So that would have been, on again, on everyone's minds. And, and the people who are gathered in that chamber, presumably they're priests, they would also know that liturgy very, very well. And they would know the context. And, and this is the beauty of, again, being an insider, is that everyone knows what he's talking about. All he has to do is quote one line. And you know the rest, and you know the context, and he doesn't need to go into details. All he's just saying is that Jesus is that stone that you, the builders of the temple, rejected. And if they, you start reading the rest of the psalm, there's a lot more about it. And so he's actually making connections without necessarily being explicit in making those connections because there's no need they're going to figure this out. And that's part of the reason what causes the reaction uh, that he gets. You know, so every time in a similar way, um, Jesus would make a claim uh, that he is the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. The high priest would tear his robe. And like, you know, like, what did he just say? Everybody's like, what did he just say? He didn't say anything offensive. He didn't say anything terrible. No, he just claimed that he is, you know, a heavenly being. Uh, coming in the clouds of heaven. And guess what he's coming to do? He's coming to judge. And who is he going to judge? Oh, well, he's going to judge all of Israel because that's what Messiah is going to do. And guess what? That guy right there that he's talking to, he thinks he is in charge and he thinks he's going to judge uh, everybody. So speaking to authorities, thinking, speaking to those in power, using bold words like that and using these messianic claims and using these illusions usually produces a very strong reaction. And this, and you're speaking of the text that they are very familiar with and they understand fully the implications. And that's what Peter does. And so I kind of go through that, I guess, in, in my um, explanation in the, in the course and kind of show all the different angles that play into that quote and what it really is doing in that context. 
So there's there's one final bit that I want to talk about, and this goes back a little bit to the apocalyptic perspective of Peter, maybe, or it does in my mind, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, Because when we get to the end of chapter four and into the beginning of chapter five, there's an obvious transformation that is happening to the Jewish believers, the Jewish church. They they start acting in, it, it seems like a radical way to me to sell everything, pile everything, redistribute it to everyone who needs it. And every time I read these stories, well, sometimes I think that's not sustainable. And other times I think that is, it's such a challenge to me to exhibit that kind of generosity. But one, do you think that that is coming out of something that was culturally embedded? Like, is that actually something that makes sense for some reason that me as a Westerner just isn't understanding? Or is there like an apocalyptic vision that this early church is having and they're therefore acting out of that? Or maybe some other option I didn't list. I'm going to say both end. You probably knew I was going to say that. Uh, There is a teaching clearly in the Torah that talks about, you know, helping your fellow man and treating them with kindness. And if you, you know, this, the same exact teaching, Jesus repeats by saying, hey, if you have two coats, give one to somebody who doesn't have one. You know, there's a lot of mercy and sharing teaching that Jesus does. And all that teaching comes from the Torah. And in the end, it's that we're all in this together. We're all one community. When one of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. So the idea is that if you live my principles and these ideals that God gives in the Torah, there will be no poor in the land. Why? Because every person who becomes impoverished will be set free, even if they sold themselves to slavery. And the land reverts back to the original owners every cycle. And so there is a very radical way that Israelites are commanded to live, that you give, you loan money at no interest. I mean, who does that? You know, but that's the kind of a brotherly family relationship benevolence that you're supposed to practice. I mean, it's like, so if a family member comes to me and they want to borrow money, I'm not going to charge them interest. I'm not a bank, right? I'll let them borrow money and when they can, they will return and we make an agreement about it, but there's no paperwork and it's just how it is. So this is the kind of spirituality and family relationship that Torah encourages. And so this is the same stuff that Jesus preaches. And so when they see that moment when God is about to come and do what? Well, judge the whole world for being right or being wrong, for going along with his program or for rebelling, then what do they want to do but not prepare themselves by actually showing this kind of radical type generosity where saying, you know what? If God is coming, he's going to judge this earth in a matter of days. What good do I have from all that stuff that I have? There's hungry people in front of me right now Right now, I can satisfy their hunger. I can give them the respite that they need right now and end their suffering, even if it's for a short time or maybe it's forever. But right now is the time for me to act. And so they show their belief. They show their conviction that they're living in the last days. The days of the prophet said that God is coming back right now. He's going to take complete charge. They already had a foretaste. They already had his Messiah, his messenger come. The Spirit has already come. So what's next? 
well, obviously God is coming to judge the world. And so I want to be in a place where I'm showing that I'm going to follow the very principles that I've been taught. And that means helping everyone that I can help. Because guess what? I don't need that land. I don't need that house. I don't need this money. All I need to do is just give it all away now. And every one of us, we're going to live this ideal life where no one is going to suffer. No one is going to want. People who have much share. People who have nothing receive. There's nothing wrong with being on the sharing end or the receiving end because in a sense, we're a family. And that's what people are starting to live out in the book of Acts. And it is radical. And as you said, it's not sustainable. But remember, in their minds, they're not thinking that this is going to go on and on and on and on. In fact, they're convinced that the day of judgment is literally at hand. It can happen any moment. So, yes, they do something like that, something very radical. We have another example of people living in a very similar way. Uh, Essenes uh, who lived in the Qumran Desert. That is exactly the communal lifestyle they live in. A communal lifestyle like that with no private property, long-term, unsustainable. It, we realize that, you know, every... Every, um, let's say, human institution that tried socialism, not doing so well, okay? Uh, we just, it's a fact of life. It, it doesn't work. Uh, practically speaking, our humans, human society is structured in a different way, works better. And so, and essentially, if you look at the life of the Essenes in Qumran, they had socialism, you know, where they just piled all their goods together. It's all shared. They didn't even own clothing that was their own. It's like they... You need a clothing? Well, we have a, a closet right here. You come take this out of a closet. Yours worn out? Okay, you take it. You need it? You take it. You don't need it? You don't take it. Because guess what? You don't need it. Nobody is to have anything extra and nobody's need to have more than anybody else. So there's that idea uh, that they have it going for a while in their community. But again, it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. But the reason why they do this radical sharing of resources is because they're saying, why do we need to try to amass wealth and do that if the day of judgment is coming? We need to show to God that we can create equity the best way that we can, that we can alleviate the pain of the poor and the suffering of the needy, that we can model that righteousness right before God right now to show to him that we're worthy. And, and so that's what the Kumarnites do. That's what these scenes, that's why they have a communal lifestyle. Guess what? That's not commended in the Torah. Torah doesn't say, give away all your stuff. It just says share, right? But they take it to the next very radical step. And so that's what you see actually in, in on the pages of the book of Acts, something very, very similar. It's a cultural response to a message of really impending judgment and the culmination of the whole story of humanity as they see it, you know, God taking over essentially. And and, and that's that's how I sort of say explain uh, their behavior in the book of Acts. And, and I do, like I said, have examples of other Jews doing the same thing because they're motivated by the same type of motivation. There's no Jesus in Qumran. That's not part of their message. That's not part of their narrative. It's not how their spirituality flourishes, yet the results is very much the same. Well, that is exciting. A very brief look at chapters one through five. We're going to have to do this again. 
Yeah. We'll another we'll set those. of five chapters. Talk about second part. And, uh, and then, and then like, we'll I'm come back, like, right, right maybe right as you start to release your third part, maybe we yeah, can yeah. let people with the podcast get a first taste. The third part is the hardest one for me because it's so exciting. There's so much stuff in there. There's I'm so like, much. I'm like thinking, how do I pack it into just a few hours uh, and, and be fair? And you know, unpack it enough to give people the right amount of stuff, but then not hold anything back. It's <laughs> like, you know, give people the right. It's, it's, it's always hard to strike a balance, you know. And there's some some of my favorite narratives are in that passage. Of course, the, the 15th chapter is crucially important. You know, the council, the this deliberation. And one of my favorite stories is actually Cornelius' story. I love that. But you would know that because I'm all into food. And so it's I a am, vision. That's right. It's a vision of food. So since I study food and that's that's kind of my my point of interest, I want to dig into that story as as far as I can because I want to understand the culinary aspect of what's going nice. on there. I love it. <laughs> we will have to like have a meal together via Zoom as we record that conversation so and maybe invite we can, other people maybe in. Maybe we can plan our recipe and then just like, you know, share the same exact meal yeah separated we'll by invite miles. our podcast <laughs> listeners to do the same that would be really fun yes, post the recipe okay this is what we're eating next week <laughs> that's right <laughs> okay so we'll plan that for the future um, good. yeah but thank you so much for your insights it's always a joy to hear what you have to say and you're welcome what you've packed into your courses at ibc so thank you for being here you're welcome it's fun I hope you enjoyed the conversation about the Israel Bible Center course called Stories of the Jewish Church. If you would like to dive in the content in more depth, you can enroll in the course using the link in the episode notes. If you want to join a whole online community, taking a new look at the Bible and uncovering fascinating bits from the Old and New Testaments, you are most welcome to join our community at theisraelbiblecenter.com. You can combine this course with other courses from our extensive catalog and earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.